Good evening, ghouls and ghoulettes, and welcome to Killer Horror Critic, the podcast worth dying for. Hosted by the Killer Horror Critic himself, this is the show where guests from all over the horror spectrum join to talk about some of their favorite horror films. So get snugged under the covers, grab a cuddly puppy, and prepare for tonight's blood-curdling episode of Killer Horror Critic. Good evening, horror fans, and welcome to another episode of Killer Horror Critic. I'm your host, Matt. And I'm Chris. And this is a podcast where my wife and I argue over horror films and pick them apart like a couple <laughs> of drunks at the bar. So, <laughs> so maybe you never learn anything, but hopefully you have a good time listening. But anyway, so today we are continuing our uh, month-long theme of the Ghosts of J Horror Films, and... Today we are doing that with the 1998 film Tomie, which is written and directed by Ataru Okawa, I think is how you say their name, uh, who also directed Tomie The Beginning and Tomie The Revenge, uh, which are not the initial sequels. The second film to this is Tomie Rebirth, uh, which I actually think was directed by Takashi Shimizu, of, of all people, which is interesting. Right. Um, but anyway, it, it was directed by him, and it was based on the manga by Junji Ito, who's just a phenomenal writer i mean he's one of my favorite writers in out of japan i just i love everything that he does um Uh, he's a fantastic horror comic book artist just really unsettling yeah some of you probably know him from from other works like uh uzumaki is one of his more famous ones and then he has a bunch of collections of shorts and stuff like that it's about this girl who can't quite remember an accident from a few years ago and it turns out that that accident involves the death of another girl and i won't get too much in the spoilers with that but basically that girl has come back from the dead and his has her sights again focused on kind of like ruining and destroying this girl's life yep. sort of <laughs> that, that's the best way to explain it without spoiling it so yeah. <laughs> uh, but essentially it deals with this character tomie who is just basically drives every man she meets insane and Ooh. drives them to murder and jealousy and all this kind of stuff so uh, but it's a really fascinating movie, and we're going to get really deep into this one. Uh, but before we do that, we always have our spoiler-free content. always like to do releases for the week, so for this week, there are a few kind of interesting ones. Uh, nothing that I'm overly, overly excited about, but uh, first up is one that I just think looks super nice and heartwarming, which is a film called Sam and Maddie Make a Zombie Movie. Aww. Now, this is a documentary uh, that follows uh, these two guys with Down syndrome who kind of like rallied their hometown together to help them make this uh, zombie movie and achieve their dreams, you know. And so the documentary just kind of follows them doing that in the process of making the movie. And then finally, of course, the screening of said movie uh, for their town and whatnot. Uh, but it looks super just inspiring and really just like, you know, the kind of film that's going to put a aw, that's that super sounds, sweet kind of feeling in you. That sounds <laughs> awesome. And, and it's really fun seeing some of the footage. You know, it looks like they really went out all out with just like fun zombie gore. and like, <laughs> But but that one comes out on the 6th on VOD, so keep an eye out for that. These will all be out by the time you're listening to this. Uh, next up is a film called The Power, which is coming to Shutter on the 8th. And this is about a nurse in 1974. Uh, who works an overnight shift at a hospital and encounters the supernatural. Uh, this was reviewed by our writer Amy Luahava on KillerHorrorCritic.com, and you can follow Amy Lou on Twitter at 
Amy Lou Ahava, so that's A-M-Y-L-O-U-A-H-A-V-A. Uh, but she seemed to enjoy it. I have not yet seen it myself, but it looked interesting and mm-hmm. it sounds cool. I, I personally love these kind of period pieces, especially yes. when they're set in places like, you know, the overnight shift at a hospital. Mm-hmm. I think the hospitals are kind of like one of the creepiest settings you can have a horror film in. So. Yeah, I'm all about like period horror pieces. I just think that they're more fun because you get to get away from all the technology bits that can can gum up a horror film now. Yeah. And also, can somebody give me like a Roman horror film? I want to see people in togas fighting monsters. It would be cool to have more Roman horror movies. I'd right? like I'd like to see an old-fashioned like period piece minotaur movie or something. Come on, that'd be amazing. <laughs> no, that'd be great. But, but no, I, I enjoy these kinds of movies too because... You know, we have hit a point, unfortunately, with <laughs> technology where, like, technology does really muddle up the works, yeah. you know, with, with some horror films. It's not it's not as easy to have people just get lost and abandoned and isolated anymore, you know, when you've got fucking 5,000 ways to communicate with the world outside. Right? So, uh, so you know, my, my note to any filmmakers, and, you know, obviously they don't have to take my fucking word for it, but <laughs> uh, my note to any filmmakers is always just, you know, if you can... Unless your story is technology-based, if you can just do it and not include technology, mm-hmm. like just pretend like it doesn't exist, yeah. I think that's the best way to go because the audience will always forgive you if you don't have like a set determined uh, time period for the film that yeah. takes place, you know? Like unless you are doing a specific period, I think that just having the movie be what it is mm-hmm. is fine. Nobody yeah. needs Nobody's going to watch and be like, oh, come, there's no cell phones. Like just... Just make it clear that your film is not set in that world, yeah. right? Uh, but anyway, so that's The Power, and you can check out Amy Luahava's review on com. Lastly is a film called Voyagers, which is more of a kind of like sci-fi thriller, but this essentially follows a crew of astronauts as they just descend into madness for whatever <laughs> reason. And, I mean, the trailer looks insane. It's like very... Uh, you know, like neon-y, trippy, just kind of balls-to-the-wall insanity, you know? (laughs) Just looks like everyone on their mind just fucking going buck wild, you know, sex, violence, drugs, (laughs) like all that kind of stuff. (laughs) What else are you going to do in space? Exactly. So this is another one that I have not yet had a chance to see, uh, but hopefully soon, but this comes out on the 9th, and so keep an eye out for that. And... Uh, we also like to do, before we get into spoilers here, uh, every week on Twitter at Killer Critics, we put up a poll just kind of getting your thoughts and feelings on the film and what you think of it overall. So between love it, it's fine, don't like it, and never seen it, where do you think the audience falls on Tomie? Uh, I'm going to go with maybe never seen it. I never really know where to land with like the foreign films exactly. Yeah, so in this case, you'd be correct. Tomie is... You know, as as honestly as great of a character and story as it is, and as oh. popular as Junji Ito is, Tomie is a lesser known uh, J-horror film here in the States. Yeah. So this poll reaction honestly didn't surprise <laughs> me at all. Um, so Never Seen did take it with a whopping 72.1% of our listeners have not seen Oof. it. Uh, 4.7% love it. 16.3% say it's fine. And 7% don't like it. Uh, where do you fall on this one? I think it's fine. I like it. It's a weird thing of like, J-horror was a big part of my entry into horror because my friend in college really liked Japanese horror and I was watching dramas at the time. So it's weird because I have a special place in my heart for J-horror, but I'm also really critical of it. So Tomie, I like... Really critical of everything. <laughs> I am. Well, it's... 
Yes, I am. Tomie, I like, I think is an interesting film, but honestly, I'd much rather just read the comic book. Yeah, so so I also kind of fall under, I, I <laughs> there's no level really between it's fine and love it, but if there <laughs> was, I fall on that level, you know, <laughs> like, like really like it maybe, you know? Yeah. Uh, which I'll get into in a sec, but first I want to go over a couple uh, reactions to it. So, uh, again, these are all from Twitter, comments from Twitter. Uh, so first up is at M Sawzall, and that's M-S-A-W-Z-A-L-L. This is Doug, big supporter of ours. What's up, Doug? And uh, they say, honestly, it was too weird and confusing for me to really enjoy it, and I'm a David Lynch fan. <laughs> <laughs> Tommy, yeah, it's an interesting one because I feel like something that I run into a lot with J-Horror is that it can be kind of confusing sometimes. Either the storytelling or just there's cultural aspects that I don't understand. With Tommy, I think it does take a couple watches to really understand what's happening in the film. Mm. Um, and also, this is, if I remember correctly, this is technically a sequel to the book i believe so yeah yeah it's coming off the comic book but you know what i think it's one of those ones that like if you like j-horror give it another chance watch it a couple of times because i think that they do some really cool things with it there's a lot of underrated things that are happening in this film that i kind of like about it yeah so i mean you know we're gonna we're gonna get into all of that of just like the the many layers of tomie because it's (laughs) it is a complicated film like i completely agree with doug in that it doesn't make a lot of sense the first time you watch it you know like this this is a very complex film like surprisingly complex for Mm. such a simple story you know and it and it is what i really actually love about j-horror is that if this was you know, if this film was made in America or, or done with an American story, which there are a lot of horror films that follow a similar premise to Tomie, yeah, they would be very simple. You know, <laughs> like they're like America tends to really simplify a lot of their yep. movies. You know, and, and like we're we're kind of like the spoon feed, you know, sort of culture, right? Yep. So, so so you would just have a simple story of oh, girl comes back from the dead and kills boys. You know, that mm-hmm. it, it would be very simple like that and with Tomie it's a very complex movie like there there are a lot of things going on in this film a lot of things that don't make sense the first time yeah. and, and a lot and, of things that don't make sense the second time right and and well that is typical to J-Horror you know wh- whether it's a uh, cultural divide or not you know Junji Ito in particular mm-hmm. is a lot of his stories are yeah. very much like this like not none of Junji Ito's work really you know, sense. you don't you don't read it and go, oh, that's logical. You know, yep. like it's not. It, it it it's always stuff that's kind of hard to follow, but that really gets under your skin. You yeah. Know? Um. So so no, I completely agree with Doug. Uh. But hopefully, Doug. You know, hopefully we're gonna we're gonna talk about this one in, in a way that will make you want to revisit it and you know, <laughs> give it another chance, maybe. Uh. So next up is a comment from at Neon Robot Attack. And they say, I read the comics, they never make any sense, and the first story is 100% the best, but not great. <laughs> the author's stories are all too silly for me, especially the fart zombie fish with robot legs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Junji Ito's work is basically a love it or hate it, because you really just have to accept that whatever's happening in the story is just happening, and it's going to get weirder and bonkers and not necessarily make sense. Personally, I kind of like... Gyo, which is the one with with the fish with the robot legs because mm. that whole book is fucking weird because it's all about like sea creatures coming out of the ocean with weird lobster legs and i do not understand what's happening in it but i fucking love it mm. but if you do want giant fish 
that are killing everybody, but you want it to be more straightforward, there is a manga called Shibuya Goldfish that is literally just giant goldfish that eat you. It has none of the depth of Junji Ito, but you get giant fish. Oh, so at least there's that. Yep. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Snow, Snow again, you know, kind of similar to Doug's comment in the sense that, like, yes, Junji Ito is very confusing, maybe, yeah. you know, upon reading it. And, and it is, like, you know, it is kind of silly, like, you know, if you're talking about these fish with robot legs and everything. Like, obviously, mm. that's a pretty ridiculous concept, right? Mm. I, I, I would say, though, that some of his work, or, or honestly, most of his work, in my opinion, though, it, as silly as the concept might seem on the surface, and they yeah. are, like, they're... Yeah. Like you know, there there's a story uh, that Ito did in a, in his short story collection where I believe there's like balloons of the heads of people that have died or something like that that are like floating all around the city, and it's really fucking <laughs> absurd. But then but then like you start to kind of peel it back and and you know get under the layers of it, and it's a really unnerving yeah. story, you know, like because it uh, I I don't remember too many particulars about it right now but i remember being really creeped out by it and that's kind of like junji ito's style is that on the surface the story is just completely absurd mm-hmm. i mean he he doesn't really write anything that you know we might consider quote-unquote normal yeah. or here in the states <laughs> right but he you know because i mean he's telling stories about like you know uh, like weird worm holes appearing in people and yep. you know just like all, all kinds of strange stuff and like people be kind of obsessed with spirals you know and which is what Uzumaki's all about but the stuff really starts to get just under your skin like there's one story in particular with that one where these like weird kind of spiral holes are appearing all over the place in people mm-hmm. but it turns out that there's like things like living and moving around in those things and when you start considering you know the thought of like some kind of insect like burrowing all through these holes throughout your body it's pretty fucking creepy yeah you know? it's very it, creepy it makes your skin crawl yeah. and <laughs> well for me his artwork really can't be beat like that's a big reason to read any junji ito stuff is that his artwork for his stories is so it gets under your skin it's so disturbing and amazing yeah so he's worth it for that even though he doesn't make sense yeah but anyway neon robot uh, i know you said that you'd listen to this episode so hopefully we can convince you to also kind of <laughs> go back and rewatch tomia and it, you know may- maybe find something that you like about it a little bit more this time around but uh but if not again i totally understand if neither of you are, are feeling that way afterwards <laughs> Before we get into spoilers, I also just like to do a tagline versus the film, kind of get our thoughts on the tagline in the movie overall. So the tagline for Tomie was, Tomie will not die. I mean, true. That is accurate. Yeah, she can't die. She, it's the weird thing about her. She just gets killed over and over and over again. She keeps coming back. Me, I like this film. I think that it's it's a solid one, and I think it's an interesting take on. Look, this is our seductive woman trope. You know, we get that in horror sometimes. Of you know, a manipulative woman comes into a situation and manipulates all the dudes around her to do her bidding. But this is it from a J horror standpoint, and I think it's a really cool and different take on that kind of storyline. Well, I mean, my view on it is, you know, so I, I actually. Uh, one of our writers, Ren, uh, on KillerHerGreat.com, you know, the other day I actually saw them post about, you know, what's a double feature that that you enjoy. And I'm sorry, mm-hmm. Ren, that I didn't reply to that. I saw it and then <laughs> forgot about it. Um, but but I had just watched uh, Tomie again. And I actually think that if you're looking for a, a States film to pair this with, I actually kind of like the idea of pairing it with Jennifer's body. Right? And, <laughs> 
the reason being is that you know so like chris just said like there there are plenty of films in the states that are similar to tomie in terms of concept Mm -hmm. but the difference is, is that usually in the states a story like that is not very femme positive. No. You know, it's 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 usually just 100% the woman's the villain, you know, the men are the victims and, yep. and whatever, you know. And and the difference I think with Tomie that we're going to really get into here is how it's actually at least in my opinion it's actually kind of a femme positive movie. Yeah. With 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 certain questionable elements, but mm. but there is a lot going on that's talking about like the toxicity of men in relationships right so yeah. uh, so i actually think it's a really interesting film in that standpoint that differs from a lot of films in america because you haven't really seen a lot of those types of movies with this premise until films like jennifer's body mm-hmm. which kind of present it as one thing to maybe lure a male audience in but then is something else right yeah. so so anyway so no i i really enjoy tomie like i said i really like it it's it's a film that i think has a lot going on for it i love how it's weird but not like indulgent in the weirdness you know so so for example like you you know the film opens with tomie's head in a plastic bag right and and you think like well that's pretty fucking odd you know Mm -hmm. um but then but the film doesn't really you know go over the top with the premise necessarily instead it kind of from there plays out like this really just unsettling kind of mystery mm-hmm. you know and, and i like that about it like it's a bit slower i could definitely see why not everyone's really into this film it is a, a, a slow building movie it doesn't have a lot of the you know the really freaky scares and yeah, they, they could <laughs> and, have and easily done with it they could have it, yeah it doesn't it doesn't have a lot of the scares and stuff like you see in renu or juan which mm-hmm. we just talked about you know it's not that kind of film. It's it's very much like a, a slow build mystery that kind of you know uncovers itself as it goes, and it's not really about the killing and the scares until the third act, right? So, yeah. um, so I kind of like that about it. It's yeah. slower. It's not for everyone, but I dig it. <laughs> I I think it was a really smart choice for them to do with Tomie with the story that they were trying to tell. I. I, I think it puts I think it puts more emphasis on the theme. Yes. You know, and, and it allows it to be a little bit more important because if you just made a really goofy movie, mm-hmm. it might kind of take away from some of that. Maybe it'd be more entertaining and more people will like it. But but I think that by doing what it does, it kind of really lets us get, you know, it it, it really it really lets us appreciate, I think, the themes that are kind of going on here. But anyway, so we're gonna take a quick break and then we're gonna come back and spoil the hell out of Tomie for you. So if you haven't seen it, do recommend checking it out. It is not streaming anywhere that I know of. I do think that there are a couple Tomie sequels that are streaming, but, I mean, obviously I wouldn't really recommend watching them <laughs> out of order. So. <laughs> but, again, if you haven't seen it, I do think it is worth renting and checking out and just, you know, giving a shot or, or maybe revisiting it if you've only seen it once and, you know, weren't really too sure about it. But, anyway, so we're going to take a quick break, and we'll come back and talk more about Tomie. So, see you in a sec. If you've been enjoying Killer Horror Critic... Please make sure to head to iTunes and leave a review and rating, as this helps the show get noticed by others and would be a huge favor to me. Also make sure to check out my Patreon, where you can receive access to exclusive content, such as bonus questions for each episode, extra episodes, and more. To find out details, visit www.patreon.com slash killerhorrorcritic. Thank you so much for your support, 
and I hope you enjoy tonight's episode. All right, and welcome back to our episode here on the 1998 film Tomie from writer-director Ataru Okawa uh, from and based on the manga by Junji Ito. So, so as always, we're about to jump into spoiler content here, so if you have not seen Tomie, please go check it out, rent it. It's not streaming, unfortunately, but go check it out and see it before this if you can. Otherwise, we are about to spoil Tomie. Uh, so... As always, who do you want to talk about with this movie? You know, we've got kind of a few different interesting characters going on here, like the guy who's carrying around Tomie's head in the beginning, <laughs> uh, our main character, Sukiko, uh, played by uh, Mami Nakamura, Tomie herself, played by Mio Kano, uh, the doctor that's helping Sukiko, Dr. Hasano, played by Yoriko Doguchi. Who, who do you want to talk about in this film? So I want to talk about the detective because I really don't like him. Um, the detective is Shoji Hamada and he is played by Tomoro Taguchi. And look, I do not like this character. He is pretty much a dick from like the moment that we meet him. Mm. But I think he's a really interesting character because this whole movie is about obsession. At least on the male part, this obsession with Tomie. And the detective, I think, is an interesting character because he really showcases like how far her reach is because this is a dude who has never met Tomie that I feel like throughout the course of the movie we're watching him fall into that same descent of madness that the dudes who do meet her do like Mm. he increasingly gets more obsessive more you know I don't want to quite say violent aggressive like look at him in the the interview when he's interviewing the the boy who's carrying around Tomie's head he's kicking chairs I would call that more of an interrogation than an interview but (laughs) fair enough yes interrogation but he gets like creepier and more obsessive and it really makes me wonder with him as does a lot of things with Tomie of how much is everything connected? Well, because for me with the detective, like the way that he's initially presented is that he's on this most recent case, on um, this most recent one of Tomie, like destroying a whole classroom. But he has a line, you know, towards the end where, you know, he they're at the final like body count scene where he says, oh, I missed you again, which for me kind of implies that he's been hunting Tomie and being involved with that hunt for a lot longer than than we know. Well, well he says he has. <laughs> well, he just got brought on the recent one. He did his research and he's like looked into her past, but like he wasn't a detective with um with our main care with Tsukikos. I I don't so so I I think you might be reading a little too much in that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because cause if he wasn't involved in the other cases, he's obviously not been involved in it, right? So uh-huh. uh, I, I think that that's just to say that, he, you know, he has tried a few times to find Tomia, and he does keep missing her. You know, mm-hmm. he he happens upon her uh, at the tail end of, like, every crime she commits, right? Or that, mm-hmm. or that she's involved with in any way, which is usually a, a male committing a crime for her, you know? Yeah. So I think that that's all that that really implies is that, he does keep missing her, but so I don't think he's been hunting her for like a hundred years. You know, I don't no, know if that's don't, what you're getting at. But. I, don't, I don't think that. I think he's just, you know, it's been a building obsession with him. I mean that that yes, I agree mm. with. Like, look, if he anything he wasn't involved of, he's clearly done his research. You know, he clearly has already formed 
an opinion on Tomie and thinking that she isn't human, which, you know, good for him. He's right. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's one thing he does well as a detective. <laughs> he gets uh, because, one thing right. Yeah, because otherwise, just like per usual, cops are fucking useless yep. in real life and in this, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but no, so... But but that is what's interesting is that, you know, you, you ask if everything's connected. Of course everything's connected. Like, yeah. it, this film is all about, you know, Tomie's reach and the effect that she has on everyone and everything around her, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, everyone in this movie is touched by Tomie in some way. You know, whether it be whether it be the women who are kind of having to deal with these obsessive you know (laughs) violent men or whether it be the men themselves who are growing more violent the longer that they are involved with Tomie in any way you know Mm -hmm. And, and that's and that's an interesting thing to point out with detective is that you know he does become more violent as the film goes on now being a detective and being therefore a shitty person probably <laughs> uh since detectives almost always are shit people in movies yep. um, and a lot of times in real life but uh you know it, it's not it's not <laughs> it's not impossible to believe that maybe he was abusive to people before <laughs> he ever knew Tomie that's true um but we're only taking what we see in the movie and mm-hmm. yes you know as as the case goes on he does become more aggressive with the people that he encounters i mean he's straight up bullying the dude in the interrogation scene yep. like knocking his hat off and ripping his eye patch off and exp- like showing uh the doctor his face he, and be like look see what happened to him and he like kicks him off the chair yeah, pretty pretty fucking mean you know yeah. now, now granted this guy's a murderer so i'm not really too you know broken up about <laughs> how he's treating him but <laughs> but he is being a dick and, yeah. and that that really just speaks to the power of Tomie and how she is like obsession incarnate you know yeah. like she is everything that comes with obsession incarnate and that means driving everyone around her insane in one yep. way or another right so um making them into relentless little monsters yeah exactly so so who i want to talk about is uh is i i, I cannot for the life of me remember his name i i don't remember his name as you mentioned chris thinks it's yamamoto played by kenji mizuhashi which he's probably right um but <laughs> <laughs> but but i want to talk about the guy who uh does take tomie's head and is helping to bring her back to life right or, uh-huh. or take care of her as she regrows <laughs> from this head which by the way that that whole thing is explored in later Tomie movies and you do see how she t- grows a little bit <gasps> yes <laughs> let's watch some I, sequels I don't remember if that happens in Rebirth or not because I've only seen the first like two or three sequels but and it's been a long time but um but you do see a little bit of that <laughs> but anyway so so why this guy interests me is just because of how the film opens. So you have, you know, you have this movie open and all we're really hearing are just the kind of strange sounds emitting from Tomie's head in this bag, right? Yeah. And you've got this guy walking down this really busy city street with it and he's looking in the bag. All we hear is that bag. And what's happening inside it, and none of the the street noise going on around him, right? Mm-hmm. Until somebody bumps into him, and then all of a sudden we hear all the street sounds and people and all that stuff. And I love that it begins that way because it really just puts an emphasis on how this movie is about obsession and about how we kind of lose ourselves in it, you know? Because this guy, 
Like, basically everything else around him is being drowned out. Like, it's meaningless compared to this head <laughs> that he's carrying inside of a bag, right? You know, and I, I just love that. I love how it puts a focus on how, you know, nothing else in the world matters but this head in a bag. <laughs> uh, can I just point out that technically the first thing he does is he takes pictures with the head. Like, the... It, it actually opens on them in a photo booth. And you see the photos later in the movie. They're stuck to the dresser. So yeah. not only is he wandering around with this decapitated head, but he stopped to take, like, cutesy photos with it. Like, that's a whole different level of just, like, not only obsession, but just, like, not being tuned into reality at all. Because I think the rest of us would be really freaked out by Wait, just is carrying. It, is it weird to take pictures in a photo booth with a head? A living head? <laughs> I mean, a little bit. Is that bit. not something you would do? Are you doing this? <laughs> I don't know. Am I doing this? Yeah, oh, <laughs> we have a Tommy in our house. Oh, but yeah, he's he. It's really interesting watching his relationship with Tommy because, like, you know, like you pointed out earlier, it would have been really easy with this movie to focus on like the violence and the weirdness of Tommy growing, and I'm excited to know that that happens in later movies because I want to mm. see that. Mm. But I think it's really cool for this first movie to focus more on their relationship in the house, like because it's it's this dependency of well, her on him. Well, look, the the film. The- Again, this this movie is a lot to say <laughs> about the relationship between men and women, right? Like yeah. it's it really puts like it, a critical eye on this. And you know, like one one of the things that I really like about what's kind of going on here with this relationship or or at least when I say like I don't mean that I like that this is happening, but yeah. I like and how it's, you know, it's and how portrayed. it's presenting it is this idea of how men kind of act in relationships, you mm-hmm. know? And and so like one one thing that stood out to me is how you know this guy uh, after Tomie has grown to child size he makes her like soup or something yeah and he takes it to her and she says she doesn't want it and then all of a sudden he becomes violent and what I what I like about this moment is that you know y- you have him being kind of portrayed in like a slightly sympathetic light at first mm-hmm. uh, and Tomie is in front of this mirror and then as soon as he becomes angry and like smacks the soup away and starts yelling at her you know this this child basically uh the camera focuses on him in the mirror and then when he starts apologizing and you know saying he didn't mean to and lost his temper and all this kind of stuff then it pans back to him and him Mm -hmm. like kind of hugging uh to me as she's crying right so what i like about what's going on there is to me that kind of that kind of is saying that you know Men essentially have a real side and a, <laughs> a, <laughs> and, fake side. And a fake side in a sense, you know, and, and the real side in this case is the obsessed, frustrated, angry, you know, man living yeah. underneath the surface of this sympathetic, you know, uh, caretaker, right? Yeah. So, so it's basically, basically what I'm kind of getting at is like he is almost sort of pretending to be this nice sympathetic person to to grow his love with Tomie and, mm-hmm. and to grow her affection for him but the minute that she does something he doesn't like he you All know he devol- <laughs> devolves into this like violent person right who's yeah. freaking out and like can't handle anything and you know and, and and I think that just speaks so much to like toxic relationships in general you know and how and how there's always someone who's like 
very nice until they're not, right? <laughs> you think that was kind of the main point with a lot of the relationships between Tomie and the men was to do kind of this focus on the toxicity between male and female relationships versus like, well, I mean, versus like the female relationships we see in the film. Well, look, definitely. So, you know, I, I think that with Tomie, the, the, the fascinating thing that's going on here is it is talking about, it is, it is talking about the, the male obsession with women, right? Yeah. And, and the toxicity of that and how it kind of not only just destroys the men, but the women and, and female relationships as yeah. well, you know? So, so something that's kind of fun that's going on here is that there's a, to me, there's a parallel between uh, Tomie and Tsukiko that's going mm-hmm. on at the same time. So, for example, you know, you've got uh, Tsukiko, we, when we first meet her boyfriend, Yuichi, played by Kota Kusano, uh, when we first meet him, you know, he's making dinner for her, mm-hmm. and then she starts taking photos of it, and he suddenly goes from nice to, stop pretending you're a photographer, <laughs> eat the fucking food I made for you, you know? like uh, he, he start- immediate dick. Yeah, starts becoming an immediate dick, right? And it, it parallels so, like, perfectly with the exact same thing that's going on at the same time mm-hmm. uh, with Tomie and her caretaker where he's trying to feed her and she's not, you know, reciprocal to it and he's freaking out, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. so so it's it's like doing a lot of things at once where it's kind of talking about how, you know, on how men aren't necessarily supportive of no. <laughs> of the feelings of these women, right? You yeah. know, like, I mean, Yuichi could not give a fuck about the fact that, you know, Tsukiko wants to take photos of her food, which why does he care, you know? it's <laughs> She's going to eat it eventually. <laughs> right, just let her take her damn photos, you yeah. know? And then he even has the gall to say, like, you know, basically implying like she's not even a real photographer, right? Yeah. You know, and just kind of like shit on her dreams, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, all the while he's sleeping with her best friend. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, so he, so so both of these men are like they're they're being they're presenting themselves as caretakers and supporters, mm-hmm. right? Where they're, you know, to to me it speaks it goes beyond obsession to like an ownership, right? Like yes. they like it feels like they each feel like they own these two girls. And and we're seeing them like all throughout the movie, you know, react to these girls in the same way. Yes. You know, where they're really not being supportive of them and they're kind of treating them like crap. <laughs> well, that's my thing with it is I feel like with this movie, it's really putting a spotlight on the most negative traits about relationships. Yeah. And with with Tomie and the dudes, it's really putting a focus on this you know, male obsession with ownership, with proprietorship over women. Um, because yeah, we see that with with the dude with the eye patch who's taking care of her. But then let's look at when she goes and works at the restaurant and there's the manager and there's there's the two other boys and they all get none of them ask Tommy what she wants, who she wants to be with. It all becomes this thing of she's mine, don't touch her. Like the manager straight up is just like, y'all can't date. Y'all yeah. can't date. You can't he's trying to police what she's able to talk about. And I feel like it's Tommy as this object of obsession is really putting this spotlight on how toxic men can be when it comes to women. Like look, we're fed it here where it's just like Oh, you can't. Well, it's be- everywhere, right? Yeah, it's everywhere. <laughs> like this whole concept of like, well, you can't just be friends. Men and women can't be friends. There's always going to be that sexual aspect, which is bullshit. Well, we it- all know it's bullshit. Yeah. But this is really putting a spotlight on how toxic and not okay like 
that mind frame is. Like, they end up killing themselves over a girl who doesn't even want them. Well, so, I mean, yeah, you know, at its heart, that's, that's a lot of what this film is about, is mm-hmm. that kind of male toxicity and, you know, how they how men do tend to kind of like take ownership or 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 present themselves as protectors when really they're just kind of taking agency away from the women you know like like another thing that stands out to me early on is uh you've got the apartment manager who when sokiko is coming home he tells her of like oh there's this new uh tenant that moved in below you and he he makes a comment of like Hopefully you two will get along this time or something like that and yeah. there won't be any fights. And and then uh, after they talk, he kind of like watches her go with this sort of like solemn expression, you know? Mm-hmm. And and what I kind of take away from that scene is that you get the impression that maybe Sukiko was actually, you know, being like sexually harassed by the guy who lived in the apartment below her before. Yeah. And and the apartment manager is kind of like making light of it and sort of <laughs> making it seem like it was both of their faults of like maybe you'll get along this time, right? Yeah. You know, sort of like covering up for uh for, for whatever dude. harassment he might have given towards her. Mm-hmm. And then and then there's almost like this look as he's walking away of like he maybe acknowledges to himself of you know how he thinks that maybe she's in danger or maybe not, you know, mm-hmm. and isn't really saying it. But but overall, there's just this impression from the apartment manager of Sukiko cannot really handle herself. And it's almost like he's I, I don't know how to put it. It's almost like trying to tell, you know, it's almost like he has, he remind, he strikes me of like one of those men who maybe thinks that it's like a woman's fault for dressing a certain uh, way that a yeah. guy harasses her, right? The victim blaming. Yeah, where it's almost like this sense of, you know, he's not accepting that whatever happened maybe wasn't Suhiko's fault mm-hmm. at all. Yeah. <laughs> but but a dude possibly harassing her, right? And I, I know I'm latching on to this like little <laughs> thing, but it's there, for, you know, these things are always there for a reason, right? And, and to me, it just really strikes as like, something whatever it was happened between Sokiko and the past dude who lived below her right mm-hmm. and it just seems like whatever it was was not pretty yeah and and here we have this apartment manager this this other male who's just kind of like you know laughing it off like aha what a what a horrible <laughs> mix-up that was right like uh-huh. let's hope that doesn't happen again whereas for Sokiko it was probably like fucking traumatizing so <laughs> oh, yeah well and I feel like that's you know, we're talking about the men in this film, and I feel like that even leeches out into the the female friendships are even defined by dudes. Because, like, with this, we don't have a lot of other female characters, and Tsukiko's only other friend in this is sleeping with her boyfriend. Yeah. Like, and it's, there's there's this negative stereotype that we talked about with Jennifer's body, this concept of, like, well, girls can't really be, like, friend friends. And I feel like Tomie is kind of, like, focusing in on that, too, of, like, mm. you know, with female friendships, if you're, you know, not aware of stuff, like, this is all the negative connotations that come with female friendships, the betrayals, the backstabbings, the talking behind well- other's back the boyfriend stealing well so i mean this is where the film's kind of coming at this like you know it's kind of coming at this theme of wanting to talk about issues that women face but it's doing it from a male perspective which means Mm -hmm. it's not perfect right so so in tomie you you do kind of see like yeah obviously it's not very femme positive to have this story (laughs) of 
you know, Sakiko and all of her girlfriends basically just fucking her over. <laughs> or, I mean, you know, the, like the very introduction to Sakiko is her meeting up with two of her friends. Mm-hmm. And Kazumi calls her, uh, I think, like crazy or cruel or something like that. Mm-hmm. And basically they're trading insults of like, you're cruel, you're crazy. And, you know, not not exactly like the best yeah. <laughs> environment for these women, right? And, and then, yeah, and then you've got the cheating girlfriend and all this kind of stuff. And... You know, so 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 all that stuff's pretty negative, but at the heart of it is a is a more enlightening message and kind of talking about like how the men of the film do corrupt female relationships, you know, mm-hmm. and do turn them against each other. Like, you know, I mean you, you see it happen in society all the time, which is why I personally don't like pageants. You know, I feel <laughs> like I feel like, you know, like more like more power to you if, if you love pageants and you want to be in them and it makes you feel good about yourself. That's all great. Mm-hmm. But I personally think that pageants and things like that have been created to turn women against each other. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like like you just it, it, there, there's just so many examples of like men doing that with women in society mm-hmm. uh, and kind of like turning them on one another instead of having the problem focused on themselves. Right. Yeah. You know, like it's all like it's always the girlfriend who stole the man away from another girl and never the man who was just a dick who slept with another girl. Right. right? So. <laughs> it's it's always gets blamed on the the girl for stealing away the boy. And it's just right. like, look at Fatal Attraction, for example. Why the fuck is he the hero of that movie? <laughs> right? He shouldn't be. <laughs> well, and that's the thing for me with I'm pretty sure that I'm, um, you know, the friend who's sleeping with a boyfriend, the phone call she gets when they're meeting up in the beginning. I'm pretty sure that's Yuichi, the boyfriend calling her to proposition her for the first time oh, probably um but it's you know it's one of the things i do like about tomie and specifically how i kind of take part of the ending is look if you and this can be applicable for for anybody but specifically for women if you let your friendships and everything like that be defined by the men in your lives the boyfriends and all that kind of stuff it's only going to cause you pain. Like, her no. and Tomie were friends. It seems like the only reason why they kind of stopped being friends is, yes, Tomie is a being of obsession, and so, you know, Tsukigo's boyfriend got obsessed with her. But well, their friendship should have overridden all of that, and because well, Tsukiku didn't let that happen... Well, look, but you gotta, you gotta take the... You gotta take, like, Tomie being a demon out of it and mm-hmm. just look at the metaphor of it, right? Like Because, yeah. you know, I mean... This is the fun thing about movies, right? Is that, like, Tomie in the film is a demon that is driving people to obsession, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like, so in a sense, it's not necessarily the fault of other characters that they go insane because mm-hmm. Tomie is driving them to that. Mm-hmm. But but it's it's really just a metaphor for life and, like, how men do act about a pretty woman, right? Yeah. You know, like, they, like, like so so if you take the demon out of it, it is all of the men's fault in how they're just, you know, going fucking insane over pretty girls and, and doing shitty things to, you know, their girlfriends like Tsukiko and, and her boyfriend just cheating on her, right? Yeah, they, um, they make a choice what they do for Tomie. And, and and look, I want to move on because there's so much else to talk about with this, but another little note that, that I made with, with Yuichi is that, you know, again, when we first meet him, like, there's, there's all sorts of little things to play into this movie that kind of speak to the themes of it. And the fir- And when you meet Yuichi... He's wearing a shirt with, like, you know, one of those sexy kind of silhouettes of a woman that you might see on, like, a trucker's... Uh-huh. Mud flap? Mud flap or whatever. <laughs> um, you know, he's wearing one of those. And to me, that just instantly, you know, cements him as this dude who just views women as something to own yep. and <laughs> and show off as opposed to, like, actually caring, right? So, 
But anyway, so, you know, there, there is also an obsession with photography in this movie. You know, Tsukiko's a photographer, her friend's a photographer. Pictures are brought up over and over and over again in this movie. Uh, why do you think we have this obsession on photography in Tomie? I think we're seeing a lot in the film is because pictures are an interesting way to remember things because they create a distance between you and the memory, right? Like when you're taking a picture of something, you're taking yourself out of that moment to capture it, but you're not experiencing the moment, right? Like that's what we have with the the dinner scene. Mm. You know, she's photo- she's photographing the food, but she's not eating it. And I feel like that's something that we're watching with Tsukiko in, in particular is that she's really obsessed with getting back this one singular repressed memory. She wants that one piece of the puzzle back. But very much it doesn't seem like she really wants to interact with how that came about. Mm. She's wiped all of that out. And so I feel like we're seeing a lot of photography because it's, for me, representative of our main character who wants to interact with the world around her but still is keeping kind of a barrier up she wants to be there but she doesn't want to be present in the moment she doesn't want to like accept necessarily what's happening or why it's happening mm. if that makes sense i don't know no no i think it does you know it i mean something that does come up eventually in the movie is that there there is an admission of uh i i want to say I, I don't remember who says this if it's the doctor or not but Tsukiko, Tsukiko, damn it, it's a hard name to say. Tsukiko does have, you know, this obsession with wanting to go back to the past. You know, she, like, from the the very beginning until the end, she's wanting to figure out what is this blank space in her memory and why can't she remember, like, what happened. You know, so there is this obsession with wanting to go back to that. But I agree with you that, like, as much as she wants to go back, she's also repressed it. You know, she Mm -hmm. doesn't... She only thinks that she wants to go back. She doesn't actually really want to know in some ways, you know? Yeah, for me, it's really evident in the fact that, like, she wants to go back and remember the memory, ostensibly, of when Tomie got killed, but she's not acknowledging the fact that she's blocked out a good chunk of high school. If she doesn't remember Mm. Tomie at all or anything leading up to the murder happening in front of her, then there's a lot more that she's just blocked out that she's not acknowledging. But yeah, no, she's she's blocked off a lot more than just that one specific memory she's trying to get back to. Yeah, I mean, and, and I also think that, you know, photos, they, uh, you know, they, they capture, they capture a moment. And what's interesting about photos is that just like film, you know, they're all up kind of to the eye of the beholder mm-hmm. and, and what is going on in that photo. And so it's interesting to me that, like, you know, there's moments where, like, there's that moment where Tsukiko takes the photo of her and Yuichi, and, you know, he asks her, like, what does this photo mean? What does it represent? And she's just like, well, this is how I feel right now, Mm -hmm. you know? And so to me, it's almost like photos become part of the obsession because photos are a lie, kind of. Yes. You know, so, (laughs) uh, so what I think is interesting there is that, you know, you have you have this obsession of photos, I think, because sorry, I'm kind of rambling. You have this obsession of photos, I think, because inherently photos are up to interpretation and they and they are kind of a lie, yeah. you know, because like like, let's say, you know, let's say Chris and I are having a super shitty day. 
and, and we decide that we want to take a photo of the two of us smiling together, well, we can look back on that and say, oh, what a great photo. That must have been a nice day, <laughs> but it was actually a piece of shit day, right? Yeah. And, and so I, I think that that just plays into the concept of memory and, and the way that we view our past is that, you know is that you can look back on these photos and you can kind of interpret what you want out of it. You know, mm-hmm. you can say you can say, "Oh, I wasn't the upset kid. I was happy. I was I was I was good in that moment, you know?" And and so I look at this moment with Susiko taking the photo with Yuichi and it's almost like her being able to say, you know, being able to look at this photo and say, "No, see, we're happy, but it's a lie. She's lying to herself." Exactly, because that's coming right after he's been sleeping with her friend. He literally comes from her friend's bed to that moment and they try Mm. to make it look like it's such a like nice sweet moment there's a little teddy bear and everything like that and yeah it's Tsukiko lying to herself and lying to her memories about what their relationship actually was um and that's why for me I really like the fact that at the end we we get that moment where she's taking a self-portrait and the Tomie mole shows up because mm. I feel like that's the one moment we have in this film where the the photograph is actually showing the truth of what the situation is. Well, well and that's part of it, too, is like even though photos are lies, they also mm-hmm. tell the truth, too. Yeah. And so going back to that photo with the two of them, the lie is the two of them being together and holding this teddy bear and looking like a sweet couple. Mm-hmm. But the truth is in their faces, which don't seem very happy. Oh, no, they know? both so, got dead <laughs> eyes going on. So, so, it, and, and that plays into like the mirror thing with uh, the guy who's taking care of Tomie early on. It's basically just showing like how we all have the side that we present everybody and the reflection, which is shown through either a mirror or a camera lens or whatever, mm-hmm. is that there's always kind of two sides to the way we present ourselves and and yeah so that that is a great moment at the end when she sees the mole in the photo and it's kind of like representing of you know showing her this other side of herself right yeah that she has Uh, to accept yeah it's for me it's interesting we have we've got the photographs on one side and then we have this constant use of hypnotherapy um to try to like access repress things we open we open on the flashlight of the hypnotherapy so like what's what's the use of that hypnotherapy and that opening flashing light? Oh, I I just basically think that you know, I, if if you were to ask me, I, I think that it's possible to interpret this movie as being completely inside of Susiko's head. So, oh. <laughs> uh, so the reason I say that is that you know, first of all, yes, the film opens with the flashing of this hypnotherapy light, right, mm-hmm. and. That hypnotherapy light really doesn't come into play until a bit later in the film. And, and and there's even a comment made by the doctor of, like, we don't really do this in Japan. You know, a lot of doctors don't do this. And so there's a reason that it's there, right? And yeah. to me, it just kind of it, – it works in two ways. It's kind of talking about or, – or it's kind of setting up the stage for, like, this all potentially being in Tsukiko's mind mm-hmm. because it is hypnotherapy. It's bringing her back to a place of memory and – as we all know, memories are not, you know, 100% accurate. We, yeah. we kind of, we change things as we go. Uh, we we tell a story so many times that, we, you know, that the story just becomes that, whether or not it's true. Yeah, we make the narrative uh, what we want it to be. Right. So so I think that, and, and in particular, when you look at what's actually happening in this movie, I mean, it's really just the same exact thing that happened to Tsukiko three years ago. Yeah. You know, it's the same exact thing repeating itself over again. She has a boyfriend, boyfriend's cheating on her, 
ends up with the boyfriend killing Tomie and mm-hmm. taking her head off. The the entire time this film's going on, Sukiko's having weird kind of little flashbacks to things that happened and these creepy memories of, you know, a headless Tomie yeah. and, and her boyfriend cutting the head off in his room and everything. So I, I think that this whole film is really just Sukiko coming to terms with the event that happened, you know? Yeah, processing and, and, everything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think it's just her processing the events of what did happen and, and kind of reliving through it. And, you know, it's part of the reason I think that is you actually see very slight reflections of the hypnotherapy light all throughout the movie. Oh, so I, I only picked it up as like, cause I noticed that the light is the same color that Tomie's eye is. So, so there's a lot of actually instances of it. So the, the light's the same color as Tomie's eyes, which, mm-hmm. which vary, you know, like sometimes they're normal. Sometimes they're this color. Sometimes yeah. they're a little bit different from that, you know, but, but yes, it's the same color as her eyes. There, there's various points all throughout the film where it kind of comes into play. Like, um, like there's a, in the doctor's office, there's a painting in the background that shows a couple holding each other. And then there's like this orangish yellow light that has like a goat running towards it. And I'm so, sorry, a goat? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so it's kind of shows up there mm-hmm. uh, right outside Tsukiko's apartment building. There's like a orangish kind of, thing just there i don't know i i I don't know what it is but it's like an orangish circular Mm -hmm. thing that's just hanging out there tomie herself is walking around with an umbrella that has orangish sunflowers on it you know so this thing this this color this imagery appears all throughout the movie and to me it it kind of it could reflect the fact that that this entire thing is just hypnosis mm-hmm. and and seeing this color pop up all throughout is just recognition that Sukiko's really staring at you know this hypnotherapy light I think that <laughs> totally makes sense because for me like well it's it, why the film is so bizarre and trippy right yeah well it explains like look it makes sense then because like you know right before we have that light in the beginning in that opening the first thing we see before that is it's Tomie's orange orange yellow eye and then it goes straight into that light which for me was very much like okay we need to see the truth we need to see and acknowledge what actually happened and that explains the super trippiness at the end because we get to that Mm. final showdown and that whole scene is just so like more dreamlike than the whole rest of the movie the whole rest of the movie feels relatively grounded which would make sense if it's all in her head of like it's gonna start from a more grounded place and as she you know conquers her demons and deals with her shit it's gonna get weirder and more trippy for sure i mean you know to me it's really just like the whole thing is suskiko dealing with this internal conflict of coming to terms with either herself or whatever happened to tomie Mm -hmm. you know and, and this this uh, this imagery that appears all throughout to me is really just, you know, y- you can look at it as the entire thing is in her head and that's one way to see it. Another way to see it is maybe just that Tomie is always there with her. Mm-hmm. You know, she's always in her head. She's always near her in some way. And it's why I especially love the fact that Tomie is literally actually living underneath her without <laughs> her knowing. Because to me, that's very representative of like, the subconscious and how Tomie is always in her brain and her subconscious just mm-hmm. resting right underneath her daily thoughts, right? Yeah. You know, so that, so that's one side of it. But then I think the hypnotherapy also works because it also ties into what Tomie is in general, which is this being that, you know, almost sort of like 
hypnotizes the people around her mm-hmm. and, and drives them to some kind of madness or action that they can't necessarily control, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so no, I think I think that's all playing into it. But really, I do think that ultimately this film is just a internal struggle of Sukiko to come to terms with the tragedy that happened in her own goddamn bedroom <laughs> <laughs> with yeah. with her boyfriend cutting off the head of Tomie, who we later realized was maybe potentially a love interest of Sukiko. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I that's my big thing is like this whole film, like we're we're spending it focusing on the dudes and then we're ending with Tomie and Tsukiko actually kissing so for me a part of this and what she's having to come to terms with is kind of a little bit of her own sexuality like does she actually have an interest in in boys does she not because Tomie is very much like I am you that's kind of her line at the end you've forgotten that we're the same person and on the one hand you could ostensibly take it to mean that you know all women kind of share common common personality like we're all capable of driving men to obsession and getting them to do the things that we want i think i think that honestly <laughs> but, I, I think that's less what the message yeah, is here so like <laughs> but i'm going more for the the girls were in love and that they just couldn't handle it because they were kids i mean it's possible i, I want to get more into that but jumping off of that like why why do you think we don't really see tomie's face until the end of this and why do you think there's that line of i am you So, I mean, A, I don't think that we see her until the end because there's a part of Tomi that works better if you can't see her. If she does remain this mysterious figure that's doing all this stuff from the shadows. But more importantly, what I like with it is there's... Tomi is obsession. That's the whole thing. We keep talking about it. Um, And normally with an American horror film, I feel like if we had a girl who was supposed to be the embodiment of obsession, she would be just super hot, super sexy, all that kind of stuff. And I like the reveal of Tomi at the end because she's not that. She's wearing conservative clothes the entire time. She's in a long skirt. She's in long sleeves. Like, and not to say that the actress isn't pretty. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know if that's fair. So, (laughs) (laughs) but be that way. I mean, I mean, she's she's still beautiful. She's still gorgeous. Yeah. I mean, remember, you know, Japan is a different way that they present these things than we do. So Mm -hmm. it's. I, I think the real reason why is actually like right have your mind blown. I think it's because <laughs> always. I think it's because Tomie is every woman. Yeah, well, that's what I was getting at. Well, you didn't say that. Well, you didn't <laughs> let me finish. No, you were just going off on how she's not really that pretty. So. Well, no, I was trying to imply that like the thing that I really like about Tomie and her reveal is the fact that once we see her. You know, she is she is more that that everyday woman. She is on the same level that like our main character is because they're both very gorgeous girls. No, but what I mean is like I don't I don't mean that she's on the same level. I mm. just mean that she is literally every woman in the mm. sense that like you don't see her face because she represents every woman. Okay. You know, as in like so what I, what I'm getting at is that she I, I think you don't see her face because again, it's like it's like putting yourself into the shoes of a character, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the minute you see their face, the minute they have their own identity. Yes. You know, so like like if you only see the back of my head, I'm just a back of a head. <laughs> you know, but the second <laughs> you're just you, some dude. Yeah, the second you see my face, though, I have an identity for you, right? Mm-hmm. And so with Tomie not seeing her face throughout, she doesn't really have an identity. She's just every girl. Yeah. You know, and. So why I like that we don't see her face until the end is 
I think it allows, you know, I think it allows for the metaphor of her to be this representation of just every woman dealing with these daily situations of, you know, infatuation from men and this toxicity mm. and like, you know, men not really treating her like anything else but a pretty girl, right? Yeah. And, you know, like 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 when she first shows up at the restaurant, I think you mentioned earlier, you know, you've got the dudes just being like complete jackasses <laughs> around her. And, and, and you got the manager like putting it on her of like, now remember, you can't date any of these super Don't- attractive bachelors, you know, like he's... <laughs> He's basically implying, like, I know you really want this dude who keeps blowing in a whistle at the table, yeah. <laughs> but but no dating, you know? Nope. And, uh, you know, me, basically, like, implying it would be her fault if, yeah. if there was to be a relationship, right? And so, you know, so I think that by not seeing her face throughout, it, it allows maybe, I think, an audience to put themselves more in the Tomie's shoes and and just, you know, be her, you know? Yeah. And, and be able to be able to kind of say, like, this is just what every woman goes through. It's not. It's not just Tomie. Mm-hmm. You know, it's saying that this is what a lot of women deal with on a daily basis is going through, you know, men acting like fucking assholes like this <laughs> all the time, right? So, so by not having a face, it just she becomes every woman through that. Yeah. You know. No, I definitely see that, and it's for me why I kind of like the fact that we even when she's seducing Yuichi, we don't see her face. It's all in shadow. Like, that's the closest we see her face up until that point. And I do like the fact that her face and most of her conversation is reserved for just a conversation between her and Tsukiko. Um, Which, to your point, then becomes that conversation that women ostensibly kind of have together of, you know, what is the female experience? And how close is it? Look, I mean, there's a big theme of, you know, uh, of the female experience here. And, and what that entails right and mm-hmm. you do see it a lot especially in the second half where you know you've got the detective for example saying that Tomie is beyond the law which in film terms is him going well she's a demon and so she's beyond the law you know yeah but I think in more metaphorical and thematic terms it's kind of saying like you know women that face this harassment and abuse by men kind of beyond law because there's not really a lot that they either can do or do do about it right yeah. you know and, and it's why i also love that tomie keeps saying over and over again throughout different parts of the movie that it's not my fault you know she keeps saying it's not my fault and you know even though she's a manipulative demon <laughs> in the movie uh she's right in yeah. a sense you know especially in a metaphorical sense like she's right that it's not her fault that some dude just decides he's going to murder someone because right? they're attracted to her, right? Like, it's, like he that takes away the agency of the dude. Like, if he's able to just pin it and like, oh, this girl hypnotized me. Oh, this girl made me do it. That's an excuse that really only dudes can use. Well, well, it's like uh, so uh, the scene where she where she comes in and is talking to Yuichi in in the back room at the restaurant. You know, it's a really important moment because she's. She's sitting there just like talking to him and and granted, yes, she is being a bit flirty, you know. There's mm-hmm. there's no there's no doubt. I mean, she's sitting there like kind of lifting up her skirt and rubbing her leg and stuff like that's obviously kind of part of her intention, but mm-hmm. you know, he says something of like he says something like you can't do this or this isn't fair or what are you doing to me? Yeah. And she says, "What? It's not my fault," you know. And and in that sense, she is right. Like even if she's you know, it, it goes back to like that whole conversation of, you know, 
of how just because a woman dresses a certain way doesn't mean she's asking for anything. Exactly. And it's the same thing here. Like, even if, you know, let's just stretch it to as far if as we can. Even if Tomie is coming on to him in that sense, she's not responsible for his actions, right? Exactly. So- <laughs> like, he, he is 100%. And Yuichi, out of all the boys, shows that he is the most in control of what he wants to do. He doesn't really descend into the same madness that the other guys do mm. um but it is that moment because yeah she yeah she's rubbing her leg and lifting her skirt up a little bit but it's on the the pretense of she's on her feet all the time she's doing a very mundane thing and it's this concept that dudes take that mundane thing and make it it has to be sexual well, she look, has but, to be coming on to him no, no no but what i'm saying is it doesn't even matter if it, she is or not no it doesn't the, the point that i'm making is that mm. He's saying something like, what are you doing to me, you know? And, and basically, it's like putting blame on her for flirting with him. So, like, what I'm trying to say is I, it doesn't matter if she's flirting with him or not. That's mm-hmm. not the point. The point is, is that he is in control of how he reacts to her flirting with him, you know? Yeah. So, he, so he's kind of presenting it like, you know, what are you doing to me? Like, you're going to you're gonna make me cheat on my girlfriend or something. You know, that's kind of how he's presenting it. And it's like, well, that's not really Tomia's no. fault. Like, I mean, you know, Tomia could fucking strip nude in front of him if she wanted. It doesn't mean that it's her fault no. if he does something, right? Exactly. So. <laughs> he he ultimately makes the choice. He ultimately chooses what he's going to do and what he's not going to do. Right. So that's why I'm saying it, it doesn't matter what he interprets that she's doing. Mm-hmm. You know, and it doesn't matter if she is flirting with him. Like, I'm just trying to make the point that it, it she is making a commentary on how it is not her fault or any other woman's fault for attracting the attention of a man into doing whatever he does thereafter, right? Yeah, agreed. So, so like, you know, again, just going back to, like, how you dress and all that kind of stuff, I mean, a woman could walk topless down the street right outside of her apartment right now. Mm Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that she's asking for some dude to come, like, do whatever to her, right? No. Yeah. She felt like walking topless down the street. Maybe she's insane. I don't know, but she did. <laughs> she made that choice to go do that. But that choice is not putting up a blue, a, a, a fucking banner on her forehead that says, "Hey, come touch me." You know, like that's not what it is. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Like, unless someone explicitly says something, their actions don't necessarily have any meaning besides doing something for themselves. Right. So, so the crux, of the, or, or so what to me it really is like at at the end of the day with this movie is that it's really just. One big long commentary on how, you know, women, you know, like men might be driven nuts by women. Men, men might be obsessed with women. Men mm-hmm. might be attracted to women. Like whatever, whatever men are with women. <laughs> the the point of Tomie is that it's not on Tomie's shoulders. No. Whatever happens because of that attraction, right? Yep. Because Tomie herself does not kill a single person in this movie. <laughs> She doesn't, does she? No, it's all of the men. The yep. men all kill each other or other people, right? Yep. Tomie does not do one thing herself. <laughs> and, and so Tomie did nothing wrong. Right, which is why she says, it's not my fault. Yep. <laughs> uh, but all right, so we do have to start wrapping up as much as I could talk about this movie for fucking ever. <laughs> so who's your killer idiot of Tomie? So I'm for killer idiot. I'm just going on basic horror rules. The dudes who just cut off her head, guys, you got to burn the body. Like that's why she keeps coming back. 
I mean, Tsukiko gets it. She burns the body. So, yeah, my, my dude, the dudes in this are my killer idiots. Yeah, I have a feeling if Tomi is a demon that uh, it won't really matter if they burn her body. She'll no. come back again somehow anyways. <laughs> I mean, she kind of does anyway, so. Uh, exactly. I mean, it- she is burned at the end of this movie and still comes back. So. <laughs> Uh, but no, my killer idiot is just, uh, again, I forget his name, but the co-worker at the restaurant who keeps blowing the goddamn duck whistle or whatever. Yeah, fuck that dude. Um, it, it, like, I just made the note of, like, he keeps doing that, and I'm just like, I'm glad he's dead. Yeah. I'm glad that motherfucking <laughs> moron is dead. You know, he he, remind, he reminds me of every asshole that I've ever worked with in any environment like that that I just fucking despised. Because <laughs> they're, they're that typical douche <laughs> that thinks everything's about them. And I was just like, yeah, no, I- I'm, gl- I'm glad that moron's dead. Um, <laughs> what about your killer death of Tomie? Uh, I really like how the manager of the restaurant dies because he gets an umbrella shoved through his face. Yeah, so I also put that one. It's a shame that we don't see the actual umbrella go yeah. through his face, but still... It's cool. Fi- finding his body with Tomie's umbrella through his mouth is still pretty fucking great. So. Yep. <laughs> uh, what about your killer MVP? So this might be a weird one. Um, so it's the the theme song because there's a song that plays the beginning credits and the end credits. Um, I want to say when I looked it up, it's called Robbie Song by a J-pop band called World Famous. Okay. But that song plays every time Tomie is ostensibly getting her claws in someone. So as you're watching the movie, every time someone's getting addicted ostensibly to Tomie, that song plays. And I just think that that's really cool. Plus, it's stuck in my head. So Yeah, I don't know that's a great song, but it's an addictive song. It's an addictive <laughs> song. I don't understand what's being said in it because it's in a really robot-y voice, but yeah. just that use is cool. Uh, so my killer MVP goes to uh, Mio Kano, who plays Tomie, but not for her performance, although I do think her performance <laughs> is great, um, especially considering that, you know, I think she, I think she really brings like a kind of wisdom to a youthful role mm-hmm. you know like you can like being this demon that's lived for hundreds of years you can kind of sense that from her even though she is so young you know uh, so I do think it's a great performance but I'm giving it to her because she has the moment in the film where she goes to feed uh, Sukiko Rochus and I'm like 99% positive that that is a real live roach that she is holding with her bare <laughs> hands and, and holding up to Sukiko because, she, you know, it's her bare fingers and the things in Tenna are, like, all flailing uh-huh. and stuff. So I'm pretty sure that's a real roach that she's holding. Oh. And I just want to give it to her for that because I don't even think that's something I could do. I, no. I, I would never pick up a roach with my bare hands. I mean, maybe if I'm getting paid enough, but... <laughs> no, I'm not touching a roach. I would just scream. Yeah, I would definitely not want to. I know that, you know. Yeah. So so I just got to give it to her for that because that's, you know... That's impressive. That's uh that's some committed filmmaking there. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, but all right, so that's going to do it for us on Tomie. So we're going to move into our Patreon content where we're going to talk about our thoughts on Tomie kind of resenting the idea of being pretty forever and what that's all about, uh, as well as our thoughts on everyone in this film being a smoker. Like the, the the concept of smoking and being a smoker is one that's heavily emphasized in the movie for some reason. Mm-hmm. So we're going to kind of get into why we think that is. If you'd like to hear that, just go to patreon.com slash killahorrorcritic. For a dollar a month, you get access to all our additional bonus content. We also have bonus episodes, uh, lists talking about new movies that you should check out every week, voting for what we're talking about each month and and for bonus episodes. So, again, if you'd like to contribute to that, just go to patreon.com slash killerhorrorcritic. Every dollar goes right back to our writers and pays them for all the wonderful work that they do at killerhorrorcritic.com. So we just really appreciate any support we can get. Otherwise, we just, you know, thank you for listening. 
And also want to give a shout out to our killer members on Patreon, uh, Ben Scouten, Michael Campbell, Martin Echetta, Seth Vermont, Kelsey Lynn, and John Rhea Adams. Just thank you so much for all of your support and everything that you do for us. Next week is going to be on the uh, J-horror film One Missed Call. Yes. Uh, which I can't wait to talk about because it's actually my personal favorite uh, long-haired ghost yep. J-horror film, you know, if we're talking about, like, the big long-haired ghost movies. Hey. That's my personal favorites. <laughs> it used to be mine, and then we saw Sadako versus Kayako, and I love that movie. It's not a... It's it's just fun. It's fun. It's, it's a very you movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> yep. But anyway, so that's going to do it for us on Tomie. So thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Bye. I hope you've enjoyed tonight's episode of Killer Horror Critic. If you'd like to scream with us some more, please subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Killer From Space, as well as Instagram at Killer underscore Horror underscore Critic. New episodes release every Friday, so keep your eyeballs peeled just the way I like them. Have a good night horror fans.